Welcome back to Venture Studio, and welcome back to our fascinating two-part interview with Bitcoin Jesus, Roger Ver. If you missed part one, you can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you're a fan of Venture Studio, here are three ideas for you. Tell us why you're a fan on Twitter, at Venture Studio. Give us a five-star review on iTunes, or share your favorite episode with a friend. We pick up part two right after Roger described how and why he renounced his U.S. citizenship. Dave kicks off episode two on the same thread, asking Roger about the repercussions of his actions and beliefs, including a stint in federal prison. After discussing the justice system and unauthorized explosive sales, we reel it back to Bitcoin by digging into blockchain, fixed supply, and some predictions for 2016. Now let's head back up to the Venture Studio office with Roger Ver and Dave Lerner. In the office, baby. Going up. I want to get into what citizenship is a, a little later in, in our conversation. These are strongly held beliefs that you have. And if I could put it this way, you've paid a heavy price for your views when you were living in the States. Uh, tell the folks about your experience with running up against the government and law enforcement when you were just trying to sell product online to farmers, etc. if you don't mind sharing that. Sure. So after studying all you know these economics books when I was younger, I, I wanted to make the world a better place. And everybody wants to make the world a better place. And I thought the, the right way to do that was, was spreading these ideas about how free markets help people all over the world. So I ran for California State Assembly as a libertarian. I forget the exact year, but around the same time, uh, there was an event in Waco, Texas, where basically a bunch of religious nuts is basically what I would call them, had, uh, you know, their big church. The FBI and ATF, you know, surrounded their their compound, and compound, which was actually just a church, you know, that's a, a dysphemism that the government used to slander them and make them sound probably a bit crazier than they were. But anyhow, what wound up happening is they burnt to death, like, I think it was like 70-something kids mm -hmm. in this church. And like, even if their parents were, you know, a little bit, too religious, burning them to death in the building doesn't help anybody and certainly doesn't help the kids. And so uh, I was invited to debate the Republican and the Democratic candidate at San Jose State University. And in that debate, I called the FBI and ATF a bunch of jackbooted thugs and murderers in reference to burning to death a bunch of children. That doesn't seem like a very com controversial statement. Like if you mm -hmm. burn to death a bunch of kids, you're probably not a nice person. But anyhow, it happened that there were some plainclothes ATF agents in the audience when I said these things who really didn't like the things that these this 19-year-old kid or 20-year-old kid at the time was saying. And uh, so they started looking into me and my business. And at the time, I was buying uh, computer parts in Silicon Valley and reselling them on eBay. And I also, uh, in Cabela's Sporting Goods Catalog, which is the number one sporting goods catalog, I think, to this day in the United States, mm -hmm. um, I found a product that's basically a, a firecracker used by farmers to make noise to scare animals out of their, their cornfield. And I saw that there were lots of other people reselling this exact same product on eBay. There were dozens of people selling them, dozens of websites across the United States selling them. Uh, I started ordering them from one company and then reselling them on eBay and uh, on my own website. I accepted credit cards and money orders and wasn't trying to hide anything I was doing in any way whatsoever. And I'm pretty decent at, at online marketing, so I was marketing you know, those as, as best I could. And uh, I specifically asked the company I was buying them from, do I need any sort of special license or permit to sell these? And they said very clearly, no, these are legal in all 50 states for agricultural use only. And to be fair, I'm sure lots and lots of my customers weren't buying them for agricultural use. They're buying them because... 
people like firecrackers, right? In America, you used to be able oh, yeah. to buy. So anyhow, I was selling these, and uh, I wound up becoming the only person in the entire nation to be prosecuted for selling those without a permit, even though the company that I was buying them from had no permit. The manufacturer in Missouri had no permit. You know, all these dozens of other resellers across the country had no permit. It just seems like so blatantly obvious to me, too, when I received the discovery for you know, their prosecution against me. Part of the discovery packet were all the invoices and receipts from the company that I was buying them from that it said right in their discovery pack to me that that company had no permit. Yet, yeah. And they sold way the heck more than I ever managed to sell, yet I'm the only one that got prosecuted for them. And I remember I was in a, a, like a pretrial conference with my attorney, the prosecuting U.S. attorney and the two ATF agents. And my attorney was arguing, hey, these are store-bought firecrackers. We can like, pay a fine and do some community service. There's no reason to you know, ruin my, my life over this. The ATF agent, he literally he pounded his hand on the table and shouted, but you didn't hear the things that he said. But they weren't mad about anything that I had done. They weren't mad about me selling firecrackers on eBay. They were mad about the things that I was saying. And uh, eventually I wound up signing a plea deal, um, and th they threatened me very clearly. They said, uh, I could sign a plea agreement, and I'll do between 8 and 14 months in federal prison, or I could take it to trial. And like the actual charges were dealing explosives without a, a, a license. And I very clearly, I dealt explosives without a license. Firecrackers are explosives. Right. I sold them, and I didn't have a license. If I had taken it to trial, I, I think very clearly I would have lost. Right. And they told me if I take it to trial and lose, they're going to give me seven or eight years in prison. Wow. So it seemed very clear to me that, you know, eight to 14 months versus seven to eight years, of course, eight to 14 months is, is a, a much better choice between those two. So um, I signed the plea deal. And I remember in, in court the morning, too, when we were going over the plea deal with the judge, the judge asked me, he said, did anybody threaten or coerce you in any way to sign this plea agreement? And I said, yes, absolutely. And the judge's eyes got real big. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, the U.S. attorney told me that if I didn't sign the plea deal, he would give me seven or eight years in prison. And the judge said, well, that's not what we mean by threatened or coerced. And I told him, well, then I must not understand what it means to be threatened or coerced. And uh, I wound up being sentenced to 10 months in uh, federal prison. I did wound up doing nine months and then one month in an Oakland halfway house. And then I had three years of federal probation. And, you know, hopefully nobody ever has to experience that sort of thing. But the probation office should just be absolutely ashamed at the, how, what a bunch of liars they are and how they manipulate things and just tell you whatever you want to hear at the moment. And uh, a real wow. interesting example of just how petty they, they can be is uh, I, you know, I had already had a successful business before I, I went to prison. And so thankfully, you know, I had some assets when I got out as well. And uh, I was working every single waking moment uh, at that, that period of my life. I had bought uh, my, my first house. I bought my first house ever um, after I had gotten out of prison. And uh, I was already, you know, interested in Japanese culture at that point. And a real big part of that is don't wear shoes in the house. Take right. your shoes off. I had bought this, you know, beautiful new house that I had worked really, really hard for. And the probation officer, his job is to come over and inspect where I'm living and I guess make sure I'm, you know, not running a meth lab or whatever it is he thinks I'm supposed to be doing. Um, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with running a meth lab, but... Um, that's where that's a podcast. Other, yes. Another podcast. Anyhow, he comes over to my house and he wants to come in and inspect my house and I realize he's there and I say, sure, come on in, but please take off your shoes before you come in my house. And he says, no, I don't, I'm not going to take my shoes off. And I said, well... You can come in, you can, expect, you can inspect my house, but take off your shoes before you come in. He goes, no, I'm going to come in your house and I'm going to wear my shoes on. And I said, well, you're not coming in my house if you're wearing wow. your shoes. And he said, well, I'm going to give you his choice. I can come in your house with my shoes on or you can go back to jail. 
it's just a, a display of his his power or his authority yes. or and there's absolutely no reason he couldn't have taken his shoes off to walk yes. all around inside my my house right. that I had worked so hard for amazing amazing i mean you've paid a you've paid a heavy price nine months in federal prison elaborate what what is the environment like for the most part it's really 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 boring with occasional moments of of you know way 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 too much excitement that uh, <laughs> And usually when they're exciting, it's not the type of excitement that you want. Part of what they promised me uh, when I signed the plea agreement, and you know, anybody who meets me and talks to me, it's, it's pretty clear that I'm a pretty white-collar kind of guy to begin with. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. attorney and the judge and my attorney and everybody else promised me that I would go to a minimum security facility. And they described it. They said it would be just like going to summer camp, only everybody's older, and you'll be there with a bunch of doctors, lawyers, and drug dealers. And turns out that none of those people have any say whatsoever as to what security level prison I go to. That's determined by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And the way it works is technically any offense whatsoever that has anything to do with explosives is automatically considered to be a violent felony. So not only am I a felon, I'm a violent felon as well. Um, so I wound the Bureau of Prisons sent me to a, a medium low facility, uh, security facility, which, um, was nothing like any summer camp I'd ever been to. For the most part, you, if, you know, I can tell one prison story, I suppose you, you have a lot more to be afraid of from the guards than you do from any of the other inmates. And when I first showed up there, I didn't really believe them that it would be like summer camp, but I was expecting something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Hopefully nobody ever has to take my advice to heart, but if you ever have the option of self-surrendering to a prison, do it on a Monday. Don't do it on a Friday, and certainly don't do it on a Friday before a national holiday. So, But uh, I made the mistake. I, I self-surrendered. I think it was the Friday before Memorial Day. And the way it works is the prisons decide where they're going to put your, your bunk in, in the prison. But if you show up on a Friday, yeah, we'll get around to it later. And if they're going to get around to it later, what they do is they put you in what's called the hole which is the jail within the jail. But I had never been to jail. I'd never been to prison before, so I, I didn't know any of this. So they put me into the jail within the jail, which was this little tiny room. There were the six of us total, three bunk beds, and there's so little ventilation that it's just so hot from everybody's body heat that everyone just strips down to their underwear and lays in their bunk because it's so hot. And so I was there all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and they only let you out for an hour a day on normal you know, work days, but by the time I had gotten checked in on Friday, that had already been done. So I was literally there 20, you know, all day Friday, 24 hours on Saturday, 24 hours Sunday. Monday was the national holiday. So I was in this place 24 hours for you know, three and a half days. Tuesday, I got out for an hour. And then Wednesday, and I, they finally assigned me my normal bunk within the prison, which is a million times better than the jail within the jail. Mm. But when I first got let out of there, they sent me to, my prison, to the prison laundry to get the prison clothes. And then they sent me to the counselor, which is just a, a euphemism for a guard, but uh, they sent me to that guy to, to get my bunk assignment to where I was going to be. And I, you know, brand new to the whole experience, never, ever, ever been to prison before, never experienced anything like this before, wasn't used to having anything like this going on. And when I walked into the room that the one guard told me I should walk into, the, the other guard jumps up and goes, whoa, 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 you can't come walking in here like this. We have to search you first. And you put your hands on the wall, put your hands on the wall. So I put my hands on the wall and he starts patting me down. As he's patting me down, I'm pretty sure I see in his hand some sort of like mm-hmm. a screwdriver-looking thing. But like, I'm not in a position to make demands or accusations or anything like that. And as he gets down to my you know big giant clunky prison boots that they just issued me that I only had on for like a minute or two, 
he pulls out this sharpened screwdriver wow. from my boots and starts screaming at me like, and I'm pretty sure it was in his hand to begin with, but he starts screaming at me. But like, I'm not positive. Like mm-hmm. maybe he did pull it out of these boots that I just got, you know, right. a couple months before. And he starts screaming at me about how, are you trying to come in here with a shank? You're going to do more time for this. And at this point I knew my sentence was 10 months and he starts screaming at me about how I'm going to do an additional two years wow. in prison for this. And I'm telling him, it's not mine, it's not mine, it's not mine. When you know he sees the tears are just rolling down my face, because I think I went from 10 months to I'm going to do two years in right. 10 months for something I had absolutely nothing to do with. When he sees that I'm crying enough, he goes, relax, I'm just kidding with you. Oh, and man. he's just, you know, purely just torturing me for his own entertainment. And uh, there are quite a number of guards there that their hobby or their entertainment is, is harassing or, or torturing prisoners. That's that's what they do for fun. You've seen the underbelly of the federal system. How would you say it's affected your mentality? Um, I guess I used to be a lot less sympathetic to people in prison, but after having been there, like the, the facility where I was at, probably around 80% of the people were there for victimless crimes. Mm-hmm. The part that really was the most frustrating for me, though, too, is the people that were there for crimes that have really, really clear victims had way shorter sentences than the people that were there for, for victimless crimes. So, for example, uh, my bunkmate had a 15-year sentence for selling marijuana. And he was shipping up marijuana from Hawaii to California. And it wasn't a little bit of marijuana. It was a lot. But today, marijuana is basically legal in a bunch of places. And I'm a 15-year yeah, sentence. And, like... God. You know, I've never tried marijuana personally, but like from what I understand, it's something that makes people feel happy. And if people want to feel happy, I don't think that that's a reason to send them to jail for 15 years. I that's just crazy. Or uh, and then by comparison, there's another guy that had stolen this doctor's identity and committed identity theft, and then forged a whole bunch of checks and bought a Winnebago motorhome on his credit and a new Mustang, and like caused a huge amount of like economic damage by doing all this and like he wound up with a two-year sentence right so you, you sell a plant that makes people happy and you know today you know 15 years later is basically legal 15 years wow. Wow. in prison right. you just you steal someone's identity and cause a huge amount of trouble for all the banks and you know other companies that it was involved that were involved with that two years so are you rob banks you know a couple of years yeah you know because i know you a little bit I, uh this bothered me i i was reading an article about bitcoin and inevitably, you're mentioned in a lot of these articles, you know, Bitcoin, Jesus, Roger Ver, blah, blah, blah. Convicted felon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, it was more like ex-convict. You know, you, you conjure up an image of you're on a, a, a railway with a sledgehammer and you're knocking in ties on, on a chain gang or something. It's fascinating how the media now kind of uses that in a, in a not so subtle way to try to discredit whatever you're saying. But I'm glad that you were able to share this story with the audience, and, and I appreciate you sharing that. You're no longer a U.S. citizen. H- how do you live? Are you living on Bitcoin primarily? Yeah, the majority of my financial transactions are in Bitcoin at this point. Um, you know, obviously, there's still things in my life where I have to use, you know, dollars or yen or that sort of thing. But uh, using Bitcoin is fun. <laughs> so especially I'm buying drones and saving 20% off by using Bitcoin rather than a credit card. That's fun. Um, the majority of my life, I think, is in, in Bitcoin at this point, And I think that's only going to grow as each year goes by. That's great. And you're living in St. Kitts. Why have you chosen St. Kitts? You know, why did you leave Japan? Why did you move there? 
No, I'm I'm still uh, I'm still in Japan a lot of the year. Although right now in January it's uh, really cold in oh, Japan, okay. where St. Kitts is you know a beautiful you know tropical uh, Caribbean island. So <laughs> maybe after our podcast, I'll go out and drink a coconut in the warm weather or something like that. Got but I, I hop around the world quite a bit. Picking up a thread we touched on before about countries and jurisdictions, nation states. It takes a lot of time to digest or conceive of, but you know, m- much like money is being disrupted by Bitcoin or venture capital is being unbundled by sites like AngelList and you know, education is being unbundled by the internet and new kinds of schools and healthcare is slowly being unbundled and transportation and music and film, everything. <laughs> everything before our eyes is being unbundled. We're living in a really amazing time, but this is the part that kind of takes a while to absorb. It's like the country, a nation, a government, that too, in some sense, is it's sort of like the beginning of it being unbundled, peeled away a little bit. Economic policy, Bitcoin, that almost seems like, you know, the tip of the spear on that in some ways. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you think of this landscape and what's going to happen to countries? Yeah, a couple hundred years ago, I think it was uh, inconceivable for just about anyone to think of the church and the government being two separate entities. Mm-hmm. Whereas now today, we just take it for granted. Of course, they should be separate entities. And, and back then, it was uh, almost inconceivable to think that two different churches would control or exist in the same area of land with people living side by side. But you know, now today, there's you know Catholic and Protestant and Mormon and Muslim and you know right. a whole more more religions than you can shake a stick at are all for the most part in most parts of the world, living side by side without too terribly many problems. I mean, there's some major exceptions there, but, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, there, that, wouldn't, that wasn't conceivable at all. And I think the first step is we're going to see the same sort of thing. Where I, We already do see it to some extent where people have citizenship in one country, but they're living in another country. And then eventually, I think the next step is that where maybe countries aren't going to be based on geography they're based on maybe where people just want to participate in. And then eventually maybe we're just going to have, you know, competing businesses for protection or for legal services or for, for things like that. Um, Fascinating. Which I think, like you said, it's kind of this unbundling is happening right before our eyes in, in all these areas. And for me, I think the unbundling of, you know, government services is, is one of the most exciting things where people are going to be able to choose who they want to interact with for those sorts of things. And, and Bitcoin is, is kind of the, the tip of the spear on that. Yeah, I mean, what what right now? What are the most friendly, so-called friendly jurisdictions to Bitcoin in the world that you're seeing? Um, I don't know about as far as friendly jurisdictions, but the the places that are seeing the biggest uptake, I think, are are the U.S. and in Europe at this point, and then the Chinese uh, people in China are, are going crazy for for Bitcoin mining, which is very different than most of the people in the U.S. and Europe seem to be interested in the commerce aspect of uh, of things. But uh, at the end of the day, with Bitcoin. It doesn't really matter because anyone anywhere with a computing device and access to the internet can use Bitcoin and, and you don't need permission from anybody. And that's very different than a bank account or a credit card or anything else that's existed before. So reconcile that for those of us who, are, who see the regulatory uh, attention that Bitcoin receives in the U.S., in, in Russia, in China. Governments are trying to regulate it. But juxtapose that against what you just said. You said people can use it anytime, anywhere. Is that truly the case? 
Yeah, uh, like like I said before, the only way to stop Bitcoin is to shut down the entire internet and the entire world and keep it turned off. And let's say there's a worldwide clampdown by all governments on Bitcoin, that still won't stop Bitcoin. It'll suppress the price, and maybe the price won't you know get to as high as it would have otherwise. But Bitcoin works the same at you know one dollar a Bitcoin as it does for a thousand dollars a Bitcoin. You can still use it to send any amount of value from one person to another up into whatever the market cap of Bitcoin is at that point. Um, so you know, I remember using Bitcoin for for payments when Bitcoin was you know a couple of dollars each, and it, it worked just fine at that point, and it works just fine at you know four hundred and something dollars each today, and uh, I think it'll work just fine at you know hopefully forty thousand and maybe even four hundred thousand dollars a Bitcoin in the future. Because uh, if you a real big point that uh, we didn't touch on yet is that uh, unlike dollars or euros or yen, the supply of Bitcoin is mathematically limited. There will never ever be more than twenty one million Bitcoin, and that's one of the key points there, is that. Governments print money at any time for any reason, and that makes the the rest of the dollars or euros or yen that the rest of us are holding on to worth less. With Bitcoin, that can't happen. So as more and more people start to use Bitcoin, because that supply is limited, the price of Bitcoins in terms of dollars has to increase in order to accommodate that additional demand. And that's why we've seen the price of Bitcoin go from a, around a dollar a Bitcoin to 400-something dollars a Bitcoin today since I've been involved. And in the future, uh, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars per single Bitcoin is well within the realm of mathematical possibility. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, just this morning it was $429.26 per Bitcoin. What's your take on those who say the blockchain technology has a future, but Bitcoin doesn't? Uh, today, the Bitcoin blockchain is by far and away the most secure blockchain. What makes the blo a blockchain secure is the amount of people contributing processing power to it. And because each of these Bitcoins are worth $429 and something cents as of this morning, there's you know tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all over the world that are contributing processing power to this Bitcoin blockchain. And that makes that blockchain the most secure, safe one to, to do their stuff. And that's why everybody's building upon it. Uh, there's all these developers that are writing tools and software to, to do things with the Bitcoin blockchain. So it really looks pretty clear at this point that the Bitcoin blockchain is going to be the, the heart and soul and core of this you know blockchain revolution. And these people are right. The blockchain is amazing, but it's the Bitcoin blockchain that's the one that has all the security and, and the usefulness at this point. So banks are setting up these private blockchains. So many different organizations are talking about the blockchain. There's blockchain companies, there's side chains and all that. What's your take on that ecosystem? I'm, I'm bullish on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, that's not to say some of these other companies won't have some success. They, they, they might, but uh, the, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain has been going on for about seven years now. Uh, that's a lot of, and a lot of people have been hacking away at it and looking at it and reviewing the code. And uh, that's a heck of a lot more pre peer review than maybe some code that some banks put together in the last seven months. Yeah, I like I like that lens. I, I learned this from uh, Chris Dixon. Uh, he looks at where the talented developers are spending a lot of their time. I think that's just great. And that is and, a great piece of advice. You know, it's just fantastic. And he's saying talk about a lot of a lot of the stuff on top, but look underneath at where the talent is going. And there's thousands of really talented developers who are putting their time into the Bitcoin ecosystem. And that's exciting. And if you look at the price, it's been up, I read recently, it's up 1,500x since 2010. Not bad. Not bad. Um, let me ask you this. Who do you respect in the Bitcoin world? Uh, there's a bunch of people, and I'll feel bad because I leave some people off, but uh, if I guess... If I had to name three, I suppose, mm -hmm. 
I name uh, Andreas Antonopoulos for being one of the most uh, amazing communicators in any field, not not just Bitcoin. And that guy, we're so lucky to have such an amazing communicator like himself to spread the message of Bitcoin. Amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. And another that uh, I really really respect and, and like is uh, Eric Voorhees for being a consistent voice of of reason and, and liberty both. Uh, and you know he's been involved in Bitcoin for a long time as well. And then uh, the third, I think, would have to be Gavin Andreessen for being a, another calm, reasoned voice and being involved with Bitcoin for, for such a long time and, and doing so much to, to move the ecosystem forward. Uh, he set up the very first Bitcoin faucet that uh, I think he said it used to give away five whole Bitcoins. I think when I finally found it, I think it gave me a whole Bitcoin maybe. But uh, mm -hmm. I got my very first Bitcoin thanks to that faucet. And uh, I'm sure you know a huge number of uh, people around the world got their very first Bitcoins thanks to him. So... Uh, I think if I had to name three, those those would be the three. And then thanks to Free Talk Live, the podcast as well, for letting me hear about Bitcoin. <laughs> nice shout out. All right, so today is New Year's Day, January 1st, 2016. You know it's inevitable that I ask you this. Give us your thoughts for Bitcoin in 2016. We're, we'll have you back later in the year, but give us your thoughts uh, for the coming year in Bitcoin. I think it's pretty clear with all these talented developers, as you mentioned, working on Bitcoin, uh, 2016 is going to be the best and most exciting for, year for Bitcoin yet. I'm, there's just been so much stuff happening kind of under the radar for the last couple of years. I think 2016 is going to be the year where we really see that, that hard work coming to fruition. And I think we're going to see you know, millions of new people start to use Bitcoin, maybe even tens of millions, or maybe even 10 million plus in 2016 of new users that aren't already using it. Because suddenly now with you know, saving 20% on everything from Amazon or Starbucks, that's a real reason for tens of millions of people to that's start using Bitcoin. Caffeine. Right. Yeah, that's, that's motivation right there. So I think it's going to be the most exciting year for Bitcoin yet. All right, my friend. We'll have you back later in the year. I can't thank you enough. This has been one of the most fascinating, engaging interviews I've ever done. I wish you all the best for the new year, and thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always.